Thank you for being here this evening, and if you're joining us online, we thank you for coming also. And if you have your Bibles, I'd be inviting you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy in the 6th chapter and verse 11. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 11. I want to read this verse to you, but then we'll come back later and discuss it. But it has a word in it that I want to call your attention to. It is a verse that Daniel uh, Hooten led us in as we had the men's class the other day, and he did a good job of contrasting the man of God versus the man of the world. Chapter 6 and verse 11 of 1 Timothy, Paul says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, and so on. I want to call your attention to that word righteousness. And I want to begin this evening by just challenging you to think a little bit about this word righteousness. We'll not spend the whole period on righteousness. I want us to go further. And I want to talk with you about three of my favorite Bible words as to how they relate to the subject of righteousness. And so let's talk about righteousness. Let me begin by just giving you some of the definitions of righteousness as you find them in Greek lexicons and such. Strong's gives us this definition. He says, equity of character or act, especially, and then he has, for instance, Christian justification. We'll come back and talk about this a little as we go further. Vine says the character or quality of being right or just and says it was formerly spelled right wiseness and said that kind of catches the meaning of it. And then one of Thayer's definitions, he says integrity, virtue, purity of life, uprightness, correctness in thinking, feeling, and acting. And basically what that is, that's what is meant by the the words equity of character or being right or just. And so righteousness is this integrity, this virtue, purity of life, uh, rightness, and so forth. And there also says, in the broad sense, the state of him who is as he ought to be, righteous. Well, all of those things we just named, integrity, virtue, purity of life, all of those are things that God tells us to be. And so that's what righteousness is. But let me give you just my one-word synonym for it. I'd say that it carries with it the idea of holiness. And I suggest to you that when you look at the Scriptures, oftentimes you will see holiness very closely associated to the idea of righteousness. For instance, in the book of Luke, in the first chapter, in verse 75, uh, Zacchaeus was, or Zechariah rather, was giving a prophecy about Jesus, and he says, we will serve him in holiness and righteousness. And so he's looking ahead to the time that Jesus would come, and he describes our service to Jesus as being holy and righteous. And I don't know that he's trying to to divide and, and make them a lot different as much as just emphasizing, emphasizing the fact that 
when we serve God is with righteousness and holiness. In the book of Ephesians, in the fourth chapter, uh, Paul is talking about how that in Christ we are new creatures. And he says we are new men created in righteousness and holiness, or true righteousness and holiness. Again, he's trying to describe us, this is what we're going to be as Christians. We're going to be truly righteous, and that includes this holiness. And then one other, just to show you the connection, in the book of Romans in the 6th chapter, in verses 16, uh, Paul is talking about our past life before we became Christians versus what we are now as Christians. He says, For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanliness and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness and holiness. And so I think you can see how close those things are. Now think with me for a moment, if you would, of some of the beings and some of the persons and things that are described as righteous in the Scriptures. We know that God is righteous. You may remember back in the book of, De- or the book of Nehemiah in the ninth chapter in verse 8, Nehemiah was talking to the people and and talking to them about how God had kept his promises. And in verse 8, he says, you are righteous, meaning you are what you ought to be. You are holy, and, and the answer being because you kept your promises unto us. And if that's not enough, then look at the book of John in the 17th chapter in verse 25. This is just before Jesus goes to the cross, and you remember he's with his disciples, and he's praying And he prayed in verse 25, O righteous Father. And so he's describing God as being righteous on that occasion. And I I think we know that God is holy. Uh, We know it because in 1 Peter, the first chapter in verse 16, Peter quotes God from the other places saying, I am holy. And so there's a righteous God, and what it means is he's a holy God. And we know that he's holy because we know that there's no sin in God. 1 John 1 and verse 5, that in God or God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And light stands for that that is good and darkness stands for that is, that is evil. And he says God is light. He's righteous. And in him is no darkness. There's not one hint of evilness or wickedness in God. God is righteous. And then we know that Christ is righteous. In the book of Hebrews, in the first chapter, in verse 8, this is the writer of Hebrews uh, telling us the words of God, and that God spoke to Jesus and said, Your throne is a scepter of righteousness. In other words, you are a righteous ruler, and your kingdom is righteous. But it couldn't be righteous unless God or Jesus himself was righteous. And again, we know that he's righteous because we know there is no sin in Jesus. Hebrews, the fourth chapter, in verse 16, he's tempted like we are in all points, and yet without sin. And so he's holy, and he's righteous. And not only that, but I suggest to you that the word of the Lord is righteous. I think if we didn't even give you a scripture, you would know that that's the case because those definitions of righteousness 
uh, entailed the idea that we were doing the word of the Lord and doing what was revealed by God. But in the book of Hebrews, in the fifth chapter, in verse 13, the writer speaks of the word of righteousness, talking about the gospel. And he says those that are, are, are young and immature, they're still users of milk of the word of righteousness. He's talking about the gospel. And he calls it the word of righteousness. Perhaps you can remember how the psalmist in the book of Psalms in the 19th chapter talks about how we know there's a God because of the heavens and the earth. And then he switches and he talks about the word of God and the testimonies of God. And I don't think he actually uses the word holy, but he uses a number of synonyms that would be equal to it and telling us that word is holy. And when we do those things that are written in the word, we're being holy. In fact, the psalmist in Psalms 106 and verse 3 said, Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. He's talking about those that would be doing the word of the Lord. And he said, if you're doing the word of the Lord, you're doing righteousness because that word comes from God. It's pure, it's holy, and it's directing us in how to be holy. And then let me suggest to you, Christians are to be righteous. Now, we're not righteous in the same sense that God is, because God is just by nature righteous. We sin. And even if we're trying to do righteous with all our heart and might, we still fall short. And, and the writer Paul tells us this in Romans 3, in verse 23, we fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so for us to really be righteous, we have to we have to go to God and be forgiven of our sins, and we do this through a process of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, look at the book of Romans in the third chapter. We've turned to this passage oftentimes because it summarizes so well uh, the process that we go through to become righteous in God's sight. Verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So none of us are righteous by our own merit. We've all sinned. We've all have sinned. We can't point at ourselves and say, I am absolutely righteous. But then he goes on to say, Being justified freely by his grace. That is, even though we have sinned, there's a way that we can be counted righteous. That's what justification is. It's to be pronounced right. And so he says, being justified freely by his grace. We didn't live without sin, but yet we can be counted righteous because he does that because of our faith. And he says, through his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look back to Ephesians 1. He tells us redemption is the forgiveness of sin. That's how we become righteous as Christians, not by our own merit, but by the grace of God, he justifies us by forgiving of us of our sins in Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And so we get that redemption, the forgiveness of sins, through the blood of Jesus Christ, because God counted him and his blood as a propitiation and then look, if you would, he says uh, that this goes on. He says to demonstrate his righteousness. That's God's righteousness. Because there was a time that he was passing over sins, even in the Old Testament, 
knowing that Christ was coming. And so he says, this is God's plan, and by that we become righteous and pronounce right, and God shows himself to be right. And then after we become righteous in God's sight through Christ Jesus, we still need to live and do those things that are righteous. And that would be that passage that we read a moment ago in Romans the 6th chapter. said, in times past you did this, but now you're called to be a slave unto righteousness and holiness. And so we're made righteous. Even if we've been trying to live right, we've fallen short. And so we're made absolute right or counted right in God's sight because of the grace that is in Jesus Christ. But then we still now strive to do those things that are right and stay right. And if we fall short, we again go to God in prayer and ask Jesus or ask for forgiveness through Jesus Christ, as he teaches in 1 John, the first and second chapter, and we're again made righteous in his sight. We strive to do right, and we find that righteousness when we're striving to do right in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, a question. We've talked about righteousness, what it is. My question is, how serious are you about righteousness? How serious are you about righteousness? How much time do you spend thinking about righteousness and, and whether or not you are righteous in the sight of God? I want to suggest to you that we ought to be very serious about righteousness. And while we could probably talk a long time about this, let me just make mention of about four things that should show us that we ought to be thinking seriously about righteousness. First of all, from the book of Matthew in the fifth chapter in verse 6, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he tells us hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed is he that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, he shall be filled. He's telling us we ought to have a desire, a great desire to be righteous in his sight. And that we ought to hunger and thirst after it. I doubt if any of us have really been that hungry. I remember reading sometime an illustration where a man switched from hunger to, to breath. And he said, you hold somebody under water to, to the the point that they think they're fixing to drown, and then you let them up, and they are gasping for air, and you stick them back in there again, and, and you hold them down a little longer, and finally, and, and they just, when they get to the top, they just gasp for that air. They, they want it. And he's, he's saying that's the kind of feeling we should have for righteousness, that we want it so badly, and so we hunger and thirst after it. And while we talk sometimes about hungering and thirsting after righteousness and we say that means we have to study the word, well, it does mean we study the word, but it's more than just a knowledge of the word. We're talking about somebody that wants to take that word, apply it to their life, and be righteous in God's sight. And so we hunger and thirst. And I ask you, is that your attitude toward righteousness? Do you look at it as though you need it as much and more than you, you want water and food? You, you recognize the value of it. The second thing, look at Matthew the 6th chapter in verse 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
What comes before our desire for righteousness? He said, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That comes right at the top of our to-do list. Whatever is righteous, that's what I want to do. I want to be righteous in God's sight. And I would suggest to you thirdly that without righteousness, we do not have fellowship with God. You remember the passage that we mentioned in 1 John 1 about God is light and in him no darkness? And then he would go on and say, if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. You do not have fellowship with God if you're not righteous. If you're walking in darkness, you do not have the fellowship that you should have or should want to have with God. And a part of that would be you don't have God watching over you. Listen to Peter in the book of 1 Peter in the third chapter and verse 12. He said, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You have righteous and you have evil. You're either one of the two according to this passage. And he says, If you want God's eyes to be watching on you, then you have to be righteous. And if you want God to hear your prayers, you've got to be righteous, he said. You could couple that with James, the fifth chapter, in verse 16, where James says that the prayers of the righteous avail much. Does God hear your prayers? Is he waiting for you to, to pray and to speak so he can hear what you say, so that he can attend to your needs or or grant you the desires that are best for you? Does he watch over you only if you're righteous? And I don't know about you, but I want to know that God's going to hear my prayers. I've been to him in prayers times that, that I need his prayers. I need his help. And all I can do is cry out to God and say, God, help me. And I want to know that his eyes are upon me and his ears are open unto my prayers. But the only way that we have that assurance is if we are righteous. And then perhaps lastly is the fact that only the righteous will enjoy eternity with God and Christ and the rest of the righteous. You remember in Matthew, the 25th chapter, that, that Jesus, about verse 30 or so, starts talking about his return, how that the, the sound of the trumpet will sound and Christ will return with the angels and so forth, and, and then we'll be gathered up before him, all the nations of the earth, and he speaks to those that, he says, have fed the hunger and visited the sick and so forth. And then after that, he says uh, that those that he have not done those things, that, that they won't enter in with his people. In fact, this is verse 46 of that. He says, and these, talking about the ones that were not counted righteous, he says, these will not go in, or these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting or eternal life. And so here's the two choices there. We can either, as we said before, be righteous or be evil. And here's the destination. Those that are evil, they go into everlasting punishment. Those that are righteous go into everlasting life. Where do you want to spend eternity? Well, you spend eternity with God and Christ and all the other righteous people only if, 
only if we're viewed righteous by God in his grace and his mercy. So here's my final plea about righteousness. Well, you know how the word final is to preachers, but anyway. <laughs> right here, at this point in time at least, this is my final plea about righteousness. Don't be a hypocrite and say you're righteous when you're not. Uh, that was the way of the scribes and, and Pharisees. And you remember Matthew 23 and verse 2. Jesus would say, they say, but they don't do. In Luke 20 and verse 20, he would talk about some that pretended to be righteous. And I wonder sometimes how many of us are really striving for righteousness and how many of us pretend to be righteous. We want other people to think we're righteous or, or whatever it is, but, but righteousness is not really our main concern. Some still want to live in the pleasures of the world and not be uh, really seek righteousness. So don't be a hypocrite. Don't pretend to be righteous. Second, don't be self-righteous. You remember in the book of Luke in the 18th chapter and verse 9, Jesus spoke this parable, it says, to some who trusted in themselves to be righteous. They weren't righteous, but they said they were righteous. They, they again, somewhat pretended they were righteous. They would, would examine themselves their own way and and decide that they were righteous. Look, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians in the fourth chapter for a moment as we talk about um, self-righteousness. Notice what Jesus, or what Paul said about judging. In verse 3 he said, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. He says, it doesn't matter what I really think about you. I want to have a good reputation among men, but that's not what's going to really count in the end. It's not even going to matter what I think. I'm going to strive to be good, I hope, and, and, and think that I'm good. But... That's not what counts either. The final decision is with God. He's the one that's going to determine. And that's why Paul would write in the book of First or Second Corinthians in the 13th chapter in verse 5 and say, examine yourself and see whether or not you're in the faith. He's telling us, look, look take a hard good look at yourself and see whether or not you're doing what God said do and have you been to him for the cleansing power. And I want to tell you something, this examination that we're talking about, that is good only if we're looking at the right standard, measuring ourselves against the standard of God, His Word, John, 7, or John 12 and 48, my word shall judge you. And it's only good if we are honest in our evaluation. If we are not honest with my, our evaluation, it's not going to help us. And so we need to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, are we righteous? Because there are lots of consequences about it. And I'll tell you, this applies to both the young and the old. That if we've said we're Christians, no matter how old we are, we're supposed to be living this kind of life. We should be living a righteous life. So 
With all that behind us now, let me share with you three of my favorite Bible words. I imagine you could guess a couple of these already. But we'll relate them to righteousness also this time. The first one is godliness. You have your Bibles, turn again to the book of 1 Timothy, and this time the fourth chapter, 1 Timothy 4, and look at verse 7 and 8. He says, But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of the life that now is, and of that which is to come. And so he says, we need to be godly, or practice godliness. Now, the definition of godliness is piety, or piety with a Godward attitude. Uh, piety is just that that is right. And so when we're being godly, we're doing what's right, but we're doing what's right because we're trying to please God. There are people that will do right and not give God thought. There are people that will do right, some things that appear to be right, and maybe they are a good deed, but their motive is bad. But God says godliness is piety with a Godward attitude. It's doing the right thing for the right reason, to please God. It seems to me that godliness is the motive to righteousness, or it would be the motive to righteousness. Here we are, we're trying to be right. Why are we trying to be right? Because we want to please God. We know that He's our Creator. He made us in His image. He wants us to stay in His image. We fall we can be renewed and be new creatures in Christ Jesus, and then we strive again to, to live that righteousness as he gives it and defines it. And what's causing this? It's our desire to please God. And so godliness is kind of the motive behind righteousness. It's what's going to make us be righteous. And unless we have the right motive, I'll tell you, we'll never even be righteous. The second word I want you to consider is the word meekness. Look at a couple of passages. Meekness is found several places, but uh, first of all, if you'll look to the book of Matthew in the fifth chapter, in verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so right again, at the very first of the Lord's teaching, he tells us we need to be meek. And then turn over to the book of Galatians in the fifth chapter, and you uh, probably recognize the passage. It's talking about the fruits of the Spirit. And when you look at Galatians 5 and then drop down to verse 23, as a part of that, uh, verse 22, but the fruits of the Spirit is, and he says, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Verse 23, gentleness. And that's the same Greek word that's translated meekness in other places. I, I choose to, would, and prefer the word meekness. I like it much better than gentleness. I can see why some would define it that way, but far better to me is the, the idea of meekness. 
Let me say, first of all, meekness does not mean spinelessness or spiritlessness. That's the, the modern-day concept of uh, meekness. I, I read an article one time, and you talked about this man that uh, said that the meek will inherit the earth if that's all right with everybody else. Uh, he was a part of a uh, order called Doormat, and it was the dependent order of meek and... Uh, something other, but again, that was their motto, the meek shall inherit the earth if everybody else is okay with that or they're all right with the other people. But that's not meekness as it is used in the Bible. Let me give you about three statements that tell you what meekness is. It is a temper of spirit that causes one to accept God's dealings without dispute and without resistance. I think about that word, and of course there's some that are called meek. Moses was called meek. Jesus was called meek. Uh, some others called meek. Joseph, as far as I know, wasn't called meek, but I think what you see in the Scriptures would tell us that he was meek. That here he is, a man that is doing what his father says to do and goes down to check on his brothers, and his brothers uh, are going to kill him, put him in a pit and going to kill him later, and later are persuaded not to kill him, but they sell him to, as a slave. And yet, he just takes that. And then he's sold to Potiphar's house in Egypt, and Potiphar's wife pursues him. He's doing what's right. He escapes. She makes up the story that he was trying to make advances, and so he's put in prison. And he stays in prison for a long time. And yet, he's still not fussing at God for what's happening or anything. He's just submissive to God in this role and even seeks to glorify God, telling the visions or the meaning of visions of the butler and the, the baker. And then he tells them that the baker's going to be put to death, the butler's going to return, and he says, I'll not forget you, and he goes straightway and forgets him for about two years. And all that two years, Joseph, as far as we know, was still simply submitting unto God. And then God puts him in the second place of Egypt, and then his brothers are scared, and, and he just says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And so that's his attitude. I'll just submit to whatever God has in mind for me, and whatever happens to me, and I'll just keep serving God. And so a spirit of surrender, without any resistance, without any rancor or, or ill feeling. A second way that, that uh, meekness is described is a spirit that keeps one from having an inflated ego or from looking down upon himself. And it goes on to say that the reason that the meek person doesn't have an inflated ego, nor does he, he look, oh, woe is me, trying to get attention that way, is because he really doesn't think much about self. He is thinking selflessness. And so he's not concerned about those things. He's just going to be the best person he can be to God's help. And then one illustration that I've seen that I, I love in the word meekness was men at the helm of a ship, or a man at the helm of a ship, in a, in a storm who has complete control of the vessel. I think about that for a moment. Here's a man that even amidst the storm, he still has control of the vessel. And what it's saying is, whatever's raging around us, the meek person 
is still in control of himself. It is an attitude of righteousness and acceptance the dealings of God without murmuring. It knows the word of the Lord and seeks to apply it rightly and fairly in all the dealings with himself. And so it seems to me that meekness is the subjection to righteousness and maybe even the discernment of righteousness, that, that it listens to the word of God and then it acts in accordance to the word of God no matter what the situation. For instance, there may be times when we teach that we have to raise our voice a little and be emphatic to get somebody to listen to us or to make the point. You think about John the Baptist calling those people vipers and so forth. But then think about Jesus when he's talking to the woman that had been taken in adultery. He just says, go and sin no more. And yet when he is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he says, you hypocrites. You're like whited sepulchers, white on the outside, but full of dead men's bones on the inside. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, about verse 23, he says to all Christians, you need to learn to teach with meekness, or some version will say gentleness, but it's that word meekness again. It just says we discern based upon God's word, and whatever the situation is, we meet it, in a way that is pleasing to God, and so that righteousness continues to be a part of our life. The last word that I would suggest to you is virtue. Virtue has been one of my favorites because of Second Peter, the first chapter, in verse five through seven, where he says, "Add or give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, the virtue of knowledge, knowledge, temperance, temperance, patience, patience, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness." and brotherly kindness, love. But virtue is a word that's kind of hard for us to put into English. It's, uh, it's the Greek word arte, and you'll see a lot of different definitions for it. Uh, some of them define it as moral excellency. Others define it as moral power. Another one, moral energies. And I think moral courage would stand also. And when I'm studying Second Peter 1 and verse 5 and so, it seems to me this idea of moral courage and zeal is exactly what he's talking about. When you think about that passage, he says, give all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. So you've got virtue, but that's, We'll need knowledge, and you're still going to need self-control, and you're still going to need patience, and you're still going to need other things. Think about the book of Romans in the 10th chapter, verse 2, when Paul is talking about some Jews, and he said, I bear them record they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Second Peter 1 again, add to your faith virtue, and that virtue, knowledge. You can have the courage and the zeal, but if you don't have the knowledge and the self-control and the patience, you're still going to come up lacking. I got a kind of a devotion that I get every week 
from Ken Welliver, not every week, in fact, every day. Uh, but one of his recently was on virtue. And I like what he said. He said, virtue is a man daring to be a man, a leader of his home, a faithful husband to his wife, a loving father to his children. Virtue is a wife embracing her feminine role, loving and honoring her husband, teaching and nurturing her children. Virtue is a son or a daughter who honors their parents, seeks God in their youth, and flees from youthful lust. Virtue is the pastor who shepherds with care, compassion, and concentration, or consecration. Virtue is the preacher who teaches, instructs, and shares the word with humility, sincerity, and kindness. Virtue resists profanity, promiscuity, and pugnaciousness. Virtue embraces purity, sobriety, and honesty. Virtue shuns coarse humor, foolish talk, and filthy entertainment. Virtue quietly ministers to the weak, encourages the timid, comforts the brokenhearted, and warns the unruly. Virtue reflects upon truth, honor, justice, holiness, loveliness, and goodness. Virtue protects and or protects the mind, guards the heart, and nourishes the soul. I told Bev I would think I would like a passage that just or a plaque that says virtue and has Second Peter one and verse five on it, and then underneath it the one about virtue is a man daring to be a man, a leader of his home, a faithful husband to his wife, a loving father to his children. Virtue is the pastor who shepherds with care, compassion, and consecration. Virtue is the preacher who teaches, instructs, and shares the word with humility, sincerity, and kindness. Perhaps some of those that we read speaks especially to you, and perhaps you see the need of virtue also. And I think when I, I get through, what I would say is that virtue is the strength, the courage, the zeal for righteousness. That's where our desire or our strength to stand for righteousness comes from. And that's our reason for being diligent in righteousness. Let me end just by giving you the final wolf exhortation unto to the righteousness. I thought ahead when I said it before. I knew there was one more coming. But here's the final exhortation. Be righteous. Go back again, if you would, to the book of 1 Timothy in the 6th chapter. And just listen to what he, he says in verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things, that is the evil things, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. That's my exhortation to you. Pursue righteousness. Because you're fighting, supposedly fighting the good fight of faith. And because you've made that good confession and, and you are trying to lay hold on eternal life. If you've not yet come to Christ, come to Christ. You're not righteous outside of Christ. But come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, 
be baptized into Jesus Christ. And all your sins will be gone. White as snow. Pure, righteous, holy. That's what you'll be. And strive to be righteous. And if you're a Christian, you've already done that, but you've not been faithful, then I'd suggest to you, awake unto righteousness. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the book of 1 Corinthians in the 15th chapter. He comes down near the end of that chapter, about verse 30-something, 4 or so, and he says, awake to righteousness. He knew how important righteousness was to us and how important it was to thee. And so he says, awake to righteousness. Be righteous. Be godly. Be meek. Be virtuous. If you're here and you're subject to the invitation, we can assist you in any way. We invite you to come. Let's together we stand and sing.